Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Life After Midnight, Strange History Salem Style. As always, I am your host, Kristen Harris, and your strange history nerd extraordinaire, so thanks for joining me yet again. This episode is one I've been working on for a few months, off and on, actually. I had started it for an episode that I was going to release earlier, but I put that aside to research some other things, um, get ready for an event I was doing, and take care of general life things, which we all need to do. So I am very glad to be finally discussing this, and for those of you who have probably already seen the episode title, it is entitled Villages of the Damned, Vampire Exhumations in Early New England. Ooh, yes. So uh, before we do begin, of course, I will state that this episode, as all of my episodes, are NSFW. So if you are listening at work or in a public space um, and are near somebody who maybe is offended by expletives, now would be the time to plug in your headphones. Uh, As you all know, I am not shy about expressing my opinions on certain things, and when I tend to get excited, well, you know, things tend to fly. Uh, As you are all aware... My interest has always been in the field of thanatology, or the study of death and dying, and all of the cultural attachments that come along in that realm. However, with the study of death, inevitably comes the chore of exploring how anxieties about death can sway cultural understanding, and in particular, how these anxieties are expressed. So I love exploring the ways that cultural anxieties surrounding death have affected not only history and society, but folk belief across cultures, because the two are very much intertwined uh, and can inform a lot about what a society thought about death or any sort of particular association with death at the time. So I once had this anthropology teacher... A professor that I greatly admire uh, at UMass Boston by the name of Alan Waters, uh, and his course on anthropology of death was one of my greatest joys in life and informed a lot about how my study in particular of these things has changed and the important aspects which I come to use in a lot of my research. So When we started the course, one of the things that he began with telling us is basically why we were there. And he said that one thing that all humanity has in common is that we are going to die. And while this sounds like a cliche little usage that many people, you know, especially people that say, oh, we should be nice to each other, we're all going to die with their deep sort of, well, their version of what they think is deep sort of association with life for all of us, um... He didn't stop there, though. He didn't stop at this cliche that we're used to hearing. He went beyond this simple notion, and this is something that has always stuck with me, that people are, are the only species, humanity is the only species, that is consciously aware of the fact that we are going to die. And so, as one can imagine, looking into the ways in which people have mobilized to deal with this fact in the form of mortuary ritual, Uh, Public policy can not only tell us the basic facts about the obvious need for burial, but it can show us a society's priorities. Depending on the time period and the culture, these can change, but they reveal to us the very real and cerebral awareness of society and individuals about the inevitability of their own demise. One of the foremost scholars in the area of mortuary ritual and thanatology is, of course, Philippe Aries, whose seminal work on thanatology in his tome, The Hour of Our Death, which was published in 1977 and then translated in 1981, 
has defined the way that anthropologists and cultural historians in general look at death and the material culture surrounding death and dying. One thing that Philip Aries does particularly well in his discussion about this is about the belief in the supernatural as it pertains to ideas about the afterlife, because that is very important. A lot of the decisions that are made after a person's death do have to do with ideas about the afterlife, whether they be religious or cultural or superstitious. Um, it is always a very important aspect. And therefore, this usually attributes to the treatment of the remains. He also argued that human belief in the concept of evil and its connection to supernatural belief was a very important one in showing the evolution of thought on death and dying. So if evil exists in this world and a society holds to its superstitions and its fears, then what can happen when the dead refuse to die? When something unclean possesses the corpse of our dead loved ones only to return to the world of the living, not because they want to be with their loved ones, but because in their cursed immortal state, they need to feed on the lifeblood of those that they hold dear. Of course, I am referring to the image of what centuries of culture and folklore have dubbed the vampire. There are many names for this phenomenon spanning through all cultures all over the world. I even own an encyclopedia on the different cultural definitions of the vampire uh, creature as it's mostly referred to in English. Across all different cultures, there are literally hundreds of beliefs about the different creatures and what aspects are visible in them and what they do and what exactly causes this phenomenon. But for this episode, I'm going to focus on the English wording and the sort of Western understanding of the vampire. And don't worry, I'll probably talk about zombification, which is a whole other ballpark in another episode uh, coming soon, in a way. So... This does beg the question, obviously, of what made me want to focus on the myth and folklore of the vampire. So one of the things I aim for in these podcasts is to look at both folklore and history and divide the two. It's not to say that the two don't work hand in hand in our understanding of culture. They certainly do. But it's important to separate them a bit for the importance of not portraying a folk story as historic fact. For example, we love to hear stories about ghosts and vampires, but we need to look deeper to understand where the actual facts lay and how they spurned cultural influence into using these tropes to tell stories. I've always been a fan of the idea of vampires. I watched vampire movies with my mom when I was a kid, documentaries. I read fiction like Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles, Obvi, which everybody does if they are interested in vampires. And I read all sorts of non... or read, I'm sorry, and still read all sorts of nonfiction books on the topic because... While most children were watching things like One Tree Hill or Laguna Beach and things that were sort of teen dramas, um, I was the weird kid reading about ghosts, murder, corpses, and vampires. Thanks, Mom. Uh, one of the stories that I sought to debunk, because that's one of my favorite things to do, is not take the fun out of these stories and take the fun out of these legends, but sort of debunk them and see where the real history is. Because I think that history is interesting enough. You don't need to warp the stories to get something dramatic. Trust me, there was tons of drama, uh, especially in regard to belief in vampires. But anyway, uh, one of the stories that I heard was when I first visited New Orleans. And subsequently, I'm returning there in two weeks. And I'm super excited to be going back. I will definitely be recording an episode in the hotel I'm staying at, which is the LaRouche-Lou Hotel, Haunted Hotel, blah, blah, blah. However, when I was there the first time, 
One of the things I wanted to do, of course, was take a ghost tour. So I'm not sure if I mentioned this before to my listeners, but uh, coupled with being a historical reenactor and tour guide as my full-time job for the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum, I also give ghost tours in Salem for black cat tours and history tours. So check us out if you're ever going to visit Salem, because I swear we will not tell you bullshit. Uh, Only backed up verifiable stories. Anyway, uh, back to the main thing. I do get sidetracked, so... That's something you'll have to learn to deal with with me. I go off on several tangents, but usually they relate back. Uh, I wanted to take a ghost tour. And let me just say that I'm a huge advocate for the idea that the paranormal and public history can exist in the same realm. As I told you in the previous episode on Mall Pitcher, this is something that I actually discussed in my thesis. So this is something I'm a huge advocate for and I feel can be done very well. One can exist and be important to the other. And it helps to raise public awareness and interest in a different way. So interest in the paranormal helps to raise interest in public history in its own way. Uh, But of course, like most fields, there are those who are huge egomaniacs in the world of the paranormal, just like academia and history, actually. And they become more worried about their self-image and the than the damage they are doing to the possible relationships between historic sites and paranormal investigators, and they ruin these relationships that they always want to have. One of the things I always hear a lot of my people in the paranormal community bitching about is that, continuously bitching, by the way, is that historic sites don't respect the paranormal. But I'm here to tell you, while there are many of us that are not disrespectful douchebags about these relationships, um, there are just as many that are. And so these relationships are always sort of this disparity between historical sites and paranormal researchers because there are people who are careless. Um, They're careless in their historical research, and it drives me absolutely nuts. Uh, So as somebody who walks in both worlds, it is extremely important to me that investigators get their facts straight, which is why... I'm very lucky to work with the team that I do with Mass Ghost Hunters Paranormal Society because... We all strive to get our history correct, all of us. Um, And this is something that's extremely important. Uh, So it's important for you to not project your own beliefs about a situation onto a historical event or a historical place. So in a nutshell, I don't care if you've been an investigator for 40 years, and I say that with air quotes, investigator. If you say some jacked up shit about history, um, especially in my case, Salem history, I'm going to correct you in a room full of 20 people that are listening to your bullshit. Um, We can never make the connections that we need if we can't get past our own egos and just get it right, for fuck's sake. Uh, It only takes picking up a book or looking at the information that's readily available. We need to do better. Uh, We need to do better. These worlds are important to each other and can work together if people on both sides Stop being so damn obstinate. Uh, Rant over, rant over. Jesus, I can't contain myself when it comes to these issues. Uh, But back to this ghost tour in New Orleans to get back to why I was talking about ghosts in the first place. Um, I took a tour with New Orleans Legendary Tours, and I can't remember the name of our guide, which makes me an awful human. But let me say it was a good tour. It was a very good tour, very good guide, very entertaining guy. It was spooky, we talked about hauntings and folklore, and there was definitely a clear separation by the guide for most of the time between historical fact and the ghost stories. And he did, for the most part, say which ones were fabricated and which actually maybe had some historical fact to back it up. Um, However, then we arrived outside of the old Ursuline convent, 
And the guide began telling us the story of what New Orleanians have dubbed the Coffin Girls, or the Filles de à la Cassette in French. So, according to the tale, a group of girls were essentially brought into the city in the early stages of colonization in New Orleans so that the men colonizing in these new areas could have wives. Uh, they wanted to populate these new areas and needed some people to do so, essentially. Uh, so as we were all huddled across the street from the convent, our guide told us that the girls, when they were arriving in the port, they were ushered from the ships and they were clutching to their chests only these very small trunks that were coffin-shaped, hence the word cassette. Um, so having been on a rough journey, the girls looked a little worse for wear to the people witnessing their arrival. It was said that they were so pale and gaunt that their cheeks were sunken and sallow, and that they were so pale that their skin would redden and blister within moments of being exposed to sunlight. It was also observed that their canines seemed to be elongated, and our tour guide stated that this was probably a symptom of scurvy, which apparently includes receding gums that would make teeth appear elongated. And, of course, their sallow skin and sensitivity to sunlight was a common symptom of malnutrition. But he added that the girls were taken to their new home, which was the old Ursuline convent, where they would be housed until they could be found proper marriage partners. Soon after their arrival, people would notice that they were never seen during the day. And as most vampire stories begin, there was a series of strange deaths. Whispers began about the girls, and the word vampire was finally uttered. So finally, a group of men went to investigate after some strange deaths were occurring in the city and found no sign of the girls. But when they opened their casket-shaped boxes, they were completely empty, so there were no belongings. It seemed that they came here with nothing, apparently, according to this legend. Um, so again, according to this legend, the Pope himself ordered that the third floor be locked and nailed shut with blessed nails to keep the evil inside. The tour guide then went on to say that the third floor windows and doors remain locked to this day for the fear that these supposed vampiric coffin girls never left. Um, and that if you ask the Ursuline nuns about this, they will not talk about it um, and will deny it. And of course, that only adds to the mystery. And apparently in 1978, um, after previously being kicked off the property, a group of paranormal investigators decided to set up outside again. Paranormal investigators, Jesus Christ, don't trespass on property. If you were told to leave, go about it by other means. You're ruining it for the rest of us. But anyway, um, these people waited. They fell asleep, but they left a camera recording. And apparently, while they were asleep, they did not notice that the shutters of the windows opened and then closed. And the camera swirled to black. And according to the tale of our tour guide, the bodies of the investigators were found the next day, their throats torn open, bodies completely drained of blood. So if you're like me, what you're thinking after hearing this story at this very moment is prove it. Uh, so I decided to look into it. And sure enough, it's one of those stories that is tinged with just enough history that the myth is believable. And this is what we find in folklore, that sometimes it becomes a mash of history with some exaggerated facts thrown in to make us believe that this story is as extravagant as we're saying. But also the historical fact is there to make us believe that it could actually be true. 
So here's what the actual facts are in the case of the Coffin Girls. The Casket Girls were not the first program that was initiated by the French Crown to create population growth in the New World. Um, the Canadian colony of New France, which is modern-day Quebec, was the first, tracing back to 1663. The king at the time, King Louis XIV, recruited women to be sent, and they were dubbed Filles de Roy, or the King's Daughters. And between 1663 and 1673, over 800 of these young women were sent from France to Canada. So literally sending women to New Orleans and French territories like cattle to be wives. Yes, uh, we have a very long history with that sort of behavior on the part of men in power. The next group was sent to Biloxi in July 1704, and one of the final groups was 80 women who arrived in Mobile Bay on January 8th, 1721. But what was different about this group in particular from the other groups is that while previously women who were chosen to be the king's daughters had to have a sterling reputation and live up to it, this time the king got his supply from the House of Correction. So all of these women were destitute, most were sex workers, and all of them were meant to become quote-unquote proper wives as deemed by society at the time. And it's really hypocritical that these were supposed to be proper wives because New Orleans was a hotbed of debauchery at this time. Uh, so this only added to what was deemed the debauched environment in New Orleans, and it is initially what stained the reputation of the casket girls. So this is one of those instances, of course, where legend and rumor probably spurned on during the era of Anne Rice lent to some more tantalizing legend to New Orleans folklore and gave it a historical reference for the masses. But as I like to say, history is already interesting. Sorry, if you hear any rustling, I am currently fighting off my cuddle monster of a cat, Luna, who loves to cuddle with me at inopportune moments. Uh, but anyway... As I like to say, the history is already interesting. In the process of debunking the story of the Coffin Girls, I was reminded that while this is a particularly fake story about belief in vampires, there was a very real belief system in America that supported the superstitious belief in life after death. So, of course, now we get to the entire point of this episode. What happens when a society has a real belief in vampires or vampiric activity? And what happens when they act on those beliefs in order to save the living in their community, or what they believe is to save the living? In rural New England towns, the people living in these communities had their own ideas about what exactly a vampire was, and what caused them to wreak havoc on their own families and bring death to their doorstep. This belief in the ability of the undead to be a curse on the living would so pervade the minds of those in some New England towns that they would take matters into their own hands, going so far as to exhume the bodies of those who were believed to be possessed by evil forces that made prey on the lifeblood of their families. And the fear was others in the community. Now, while I embarked on this journey to discuss the undead in New England's past, I came across a modern article from the CBS News website that was published on September 2nd, 2011. The headline of this news article reads as such, Rhode Island teens killed after visiting vampire grave. Bella De Palma, of 17 years of age, and Elena Zuller, 16 years of age, 
died when their car lost control on Purgatory Road in Exeter, Rhode Island, and flipped late the night before this article was published. One of the girls was pronounced dead at the scene, and one later died at Rhode Island Hospital. The opening line of the article reads as such, Two teenage girls died in a car crash after a nighttime visit to a cemetery to visit the grave of a purported vampire. Even though this article is to notify the public of the tragic deaths of two teenage girls, the article feels that the meaning of their journey is worth mentioning. The grave discussed is the grave of Mercy Brown, whose remains lie in Chestnut Hill Cemetery in the same town. In 1892, her body was exhumed by the people of the small town of Exeter because it was believed that she had come back from the grave to drain the life of her living family. And these were family members that were still left alive after a bout of consumption that had plagued the household. In essence, Mercy was believed to be a vampire. So to the people of Exeter, even as late as the 19th century, almost to the turn of the 20th, vampires were real and a threat to their existence, so much so that they were willing to violate the sanctity of the grave to ensure their own safety. This article is about the death of two girls in 2011, but it would seem that the people of Exeter are still haunted by their past superstition. Perhaps some even believe that Mercy really was a vampire, and perhaps some believe that the accident on Purgatory Road was not a coincidence, because as I'm sure all of you know, superstitions are not so easily killed. I visited Chestnut Hill Cemetery myself about a year ago when I was on my way to a paranormal investigation at the Payne House in Coventry, Rhode Island. I had heard several legends of ghostly remnants in the sleepy rural towns of Rhode Island, so I decided that I wanted to see them for myself and sort of go around and, and look at what these locations actually were. So this particular trip included a stop at the purportedly haunted Slater Mill in Pawtucket, which was one of the first in America that adhered to Industrial Revolution production. And then I stopped at Precious Blood Cemetery in Woonsocket, um, which suffered the displacement of graves during a flood. And townsfolk say that it resulted in the unrest of several spirits and that the cemetery is actually haunted. Um, and it also contains the remains of a verified stigmatic, Marie Rose Ferron. So if any of you have heard of this issue of the stigmata, uh, Marie Rose Ferron was believed to be an actual, confirmed by the church, stigmatic. Um, so her grave is still there. So Rhode Island is no stranger to the supernatural, and we know that New England is no stranger to the supernatural. And in fact, it seems to pervade its public history at every single turn. My last stop before joining my team that day was Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter. I'd heard the story of Mercy years ago, or maybe just the mention of it, but the article reignited my curiosity when I found it. Uh, the cemetery sits behind a small Baptist church on a rural road. It's a quiet place. Um, it almost looks like one of those places that you see in a horror movie, literally. There's just pine trees on either side of the road. It's a clabbered wooden church with, it looks like, just a self-built deck that maybe people in the church built themselves. Um, there was nobody there. It was absolutely dead quiet. I was the only soul in sight when I was there that day. Um, and as I wandered around looking for Mercy Brown's grave, it was so quiet that all you could hear was literally the buzzing of the summer insects. Nothing else. Uh, finally, I did notice a small stone. And what was weird about this stone and what struck me about it is that there seemed to be small offerings left around the stone. So there was a small plant, there were some dead flowers, um, coins, pieces of jewelry and pins, 
um, religious cards, all tarot cards were left there, candles were left there, so all sorts of strange things um, left around the grave. And so then when I looked next to it, there were the graves of Mercy's family, um, but no such offerings were in place. So as I looked at the graves, I wondered if the offerings were left out of pity for the fate of Mercy or out of the belief that perhaps there was some truth to the legend. So clearly, you know, the people of Rhode Island are still going to see this grave and people in New England are going to see this grave. Um, so... Of course, that's maybe just our need to go on these spooky sort of legend trips where we try and find these places. And that was what drew me there. Um, but the fact of the... I go back to that article and I think about how it was so important uh, to mention this in that article. So clearly, there's still some sort of unresolved thing with the people of Exeter, with this family, and with this legend. Um, so I delved deeper, of course, and I found that Exeter is not the only town in New England where the dead were believed to have risen. Before I take you on that road, though, um, I need to discuss a bit about vampires, because Mercy is not the first in New England believed to have been a child of the damned, but in fact, according to the leading folklorist on the subject, Michael E. Bell, exhumations of people believed to be vampires were happening as far back in New England's history as the late 1700s. Uh, he's documented himself about 80 exhumations thus far, and he continues to find more evidence as he looks into these. Um, so he's studied town records, newspapers, primary sources. I've been able to find several of those primary sources myself um, through his citations. So that's been really, really helpful. Um, but what made people believe that the dead were rising and why they were rising? So this question is what gets at the heart of the matter. And it's a little tricky to answer. And to answer it, I have to backtrack a bit and give you some background and early belief of the operation and motive of the vampire, even before the emergence of Gothic literature and even before this time period in New England. Um, so there are a few scholars like Richard Sugg and Victoria Nelson who have tried to take a look at where the ideas about monstrosities like mummies, cannibalism, vampires have come from, and how and why they have captured the interest of and sometimes caused moral panic in society. For example, Sugg has found that early belief that can be equated to the likeness of what we know as the vampire goes as far back as the ancient Greeks. And I'm sure it goes back even further than that if you really want to look into it. Uh, in his article, Pre-Scientific Death Rites, Vampires, and the Human Soul, which was written for a journal called The Lancet, Sugg tries to get at where vampires fit in with early ideas surrounding death, and he states something that's very important. And it says, For much of history, death was often a surprisingly extended process. During this process, the central entity was not the body, but the soul. At the same time, the soul itself could often behave rather like a body. It was a physical thing which in part obeyed physical laws. So this is the idea that the soul was something separate from the body, that your body just housed your soul. Your soul was the important part. Um, so this is where we get ideas about haunting and intelligent haunting, but it's also something that can be equated to sort of the lore surrounding the vampire as well. Um, so it's very important of a concept in regards to death. So in Roman belief, there is something called the kiss of death, which he discusses in the article. And I'm sure many of you have heard this in reference to vampires time and again. And it states that in the period before they converted to Christianity, Romans accepted 
a kind of spiritual recycling by way of afterlife. And Sugg writes that what was judged to be the moment of death, at what was judged to be the moment of death, a friend or relative put their lips to those of the dying. In this concept, the kiss of death was a means by which the living could receive and conserve the vital force of the deceased, more or less eating their soul. So yeah, early vampiric belief systems revolved around the idea of draining somebody's actual soul in the literal sense of their life force, not the material and physically tangible blood from the body. Uh, that is a belief that sort of evolves later on with the understanding of putrefaction and desiccation, and I'll definitely get into that because everybody loves talking about a little corpse rot. I do too. I'm sure you do. Yeah. So, um... The ideas evolved over time, but the end result is the same. The dead are reanimating to feed on the living as a result of some sort of involuntary curse on an innocent perpetuated by evil forces, or in some cases in later culture, a voluntary pact made with evil forces for the privilege of immortality. So as popular culture frequently depicts, this can either be involuntary or voluntary, but the result is the same. But the importance of difference between these two possible outcomes is also very important because it can be connected back to different cultural beliefs and oftentimes dictated how a society viewed these supernatural ideas. Victoria Nelson gives us a reasoning behind the culture of vampirism and its simultaneous views by society as something horrific and something desirable to be fetishized as a forbidden and dark indulgence, hence its continued usage in popular culture. There's a sort of romanticism attached to the image of the vampire in our culture, and Nelson argues that these originated with artistic depictions of death itself as a sentient physical being, uh, one that sometimes took on the image of literally decaying humanity. So one of the earlier depictions of this concept is the dance macabre, or the dance of death which you may remember seeing as one of Life After Midnight's earliest cover photos because it's an image that I love, um, super jelly. My friend Amber has it tattooed on her arm and it's epic, uh, but it's, it's something that I've always been attached to in one of those earlier images of death that is depicted. So it's a drawing by Michael Wogemont in 1493, and it gives an early example of the, at first, skeletal depictions of the death figure. So... Initially, when death is depicted, it is as a skeletal figure. So these depictions of this circular dance of skeletal death, oddly enough, coincide with the plague years in Europe in the 1400s. Pin that for later, keep that in your brain, because we find often in these softer depictions of figures of death that they often represent times of increased anxiety due to illness and disease outbreak. And this will especially become prevalent when I talk about the vampire exhumations in New England. So over time, death's depiction as this merry host of the afterlife starts to shift. The first example is the late 15th century in an illustrated poem called Dan's Macabre de Femme, where death seems to be enticing women. Noted thanatologist Philippe Ares, who I mentioned earlier, notes that in this depiction we see the former master of ceremonies in the dance of death has become a hunter of humans. So does that sound familiar to you all in the current subject matter of this episode? A hunter of humans. So this is where this uh, sort of starts to change. 
But by the 16th century, we start to see an eroticism become depicted with illustrations of death. So this hunter of humans becomes depicted as a hypnotic drawing force that can tempt the living into the dark desires of the underworld. We start to see images of a certain theme that anthropologists have called death and the maiden. In these depictions, death is often shown taking a bride by dragging a maiden to his tomb, sometimes kissing her. And there you have it, the romanticizing of the kiss of death. Two centuries later, this image gets revived and we start to see the same imagery being used by romantic writers, poets, composers. And it is at this turn that we sometimes see death biting the neck of a young woman. So, of course, these images are ever evolving. And this is very, very important in the evolution of the Western understanding of the vampire. So this also leads to depictions of death becoming over time less skeletal and more attractive to the human eye. So it's no longer a putrefied, desiccating corpse. It is now an attractive human. And so this leads seamlessly into what will become gothic vampire romance. As anatomy is further discovered and it becomes that death is seen more in line with bare-bones skeletal remains... The need for a replacement figure in these romanticized depictions gives us the first iterations of the vampire, a lustful fiend that is undead and preys upon the living to maintain its corporeal form and its immortality. The idea in the growing age of science that putrefaction happened after death and eventually would lead to total desiccation, leaving just a skeleton, is informing at this time for people what death actually meant in its physical form. So putrefaction was necessary and expected for a person to be truly dead. Of course, this is also true for 18th and 19th century New Englanders, especially in the growing metropolitan cities where reason, science, education, and progress reigned supreme. So nevertheless, with uh, medical advancement taking a turn, there was still the threat of contagious disease. So obviously we don't get everything figured out right away and we do know this. Those in the larger cities, uh, to them, this was a scientific puzzle. So it was something to be solved using the foremost educated hypotheses known to the educated echelons of society. But to those in the outlying rural communities, especially in New England, things didn't always catch up. And there were vastly different explanations for disease by outbreak. And these would lead to vastly different methods for dealing with death by contagion and especially in coping with it. So in times of disease, we see these anxieties being played out. So in the instance of the dance macabre, it's something that comes out of the plague years to try and lighten the situation or give people a coping mechanism. And in the case of the vampire exhumations in New England, this is also the case, as we will see. So in his article, Vampires and Death in New England, uh, of course, which is published in the Anthropology and Humanism Journal in 2006, uh, Michael Bell, who I mentioned before, um, is the leading scholar on what has been dubbed by historians as the New England Vampire Panic. So you'll hear me refer to it as that several times. But basically that article discusses the importance of the way New Englanders perceived contagious diseases and the importance of moral panic created in times of mass outbreak, which I just stated. And he says that during the 18th and 19th centuries, New England was in the grip of a terrible tuberculosis epidemic. And during the 19th century, this disease was the leading cause of death in the eastern United States, and it accounted for nearly 25% of all deaths. 
So that's 25% of all deaths at this time were tuberculosis in eastern United States. In this time period, a diagnosis of consumption was a death sentence. So even though it would sometimes take years for this disease to fully develop, there was no cure. As early as the 1880s, with the discovery of t- tubercle bacillus by Robert Koch, um, germ theory did become the commonly accepted explanation for tuberculosis, but the only treatment for the most part at this time was isolation. There are other forms of treatment, but isolation is the main one used just to make sure that you cannot infect other people because it is highly contagious. Um, and that would remain basically the treatment until about 1943. Um, so tuberculosis is something that we do not figure out for a very long time. But because watching family members slowly waste away was incredibly traumatic, understandably so, um, it's no surprise to me in doing this research that those in the rural communities of New England would look to other methods to cope with a loss that they could do nothing about, and that would oftentimes result in the deaths of entire families that were living in close quarters with the infected members of their household. So sometimes you would see six to seven family members taken by consumption. So there needed to be something that could give them closure, something that could give them an explanation for why this was happening. And people very much needed this. Um, So the differences in dealing with these deaths between people in rural New England communities and those in larger cities came down to the very documented practice of vampire exhumation. And this can tell you everything you need to know about the differences in opinion on this matter and how this should be handled. This belief system is found to be the most prevalent in areas outside of Massachusetts. So there are some instances in Massachusetts, but we only really see, I think, one exhumation that happens in Massachusetts. Um, I don't necessarily know if it goes as far as the other ones, but usually people were just buried upside down or buried in a certain manner. Um, But exhumations did not happen so much in Massachusetts. It was the rural areas outside. Um, And it's worthy of note because what makes that difference is religious and cultural differences between people living in 18th and 19th century Massachusetts and those living on the fringes of that area. So this is very important to understanding the practice of vampire exhumation. It's also worthy to note, as stated by Bell, that no credible account of vampirism in New England actually references a corpse actually leaving a grave to suck blood. So, of course, we are used to, as I talked about in The Kiss of Death and depictions of death, you know, biting the neck of a female. That's the image that we're used to, but there is no credible account of that being what vampirism was to the people of New England. So it's very, very different. Um, I will explain this further, but um, those that were involved in the practice of exhumations referred to it as vampirism or to the suspected corpse as a vampire, although newspaper accounts that were found by various anthropologists use this term to refer to the practice of ending the perceived curse of family death and communities. So this is um, something that is referred to as the process of ending it, not so much as there are vampires. Um, So you might see in a newspaper people being referred to as a vampire because that is a term that is useful and familiar, but it's more referring to the process of exhumation. Um, To explain even further, I'm going to have to describe the difference between our image of the vampire and what a vampire in New England, what their image was. Early New Englanders believed in a variety of supernatural beings and spirits, and that they could indeed affect the world of the living, 
We see this going as far back as the 17th century in matters of colonization, so something referred to as the invisible world, um, something that definitely comes into play during the Salem witchcraft trials, etc., etc. Um, but they believed that this could affect the world of the living and that it could sometimes cause bodily harm or death. But in places like Puritan, Massachusetts, although it was common practice to use counter magic to protect yourself against these forces, and it had been an English tradition for a very long time, these superstitious practices, while common, were also thought of as dangerous. So while they were not fully denounced, make no mistake, people in New England were using magic. Um, they were using the operation of magic in New England. Um, but the difference is that it was thought by people who adhered to the religious dogma found in most of Massachusetts that you should generally just stay away from these practices because supernatural and evil forces could find their way in and be harmful. Even if the intention was for good, it is still a bad thing. So you should look to more progressive means for dealing with these things, especially disease. Um, progressive, of course, in the 17th century meant look to your church and to prayer and to the men in society that were deemed medical professionals. So again, here we go. Um, so disease was something that was allowed to them by God as a test to the faithful, and it should be dealt with in two ways, prayer and science. Um, however, on the fringes of this religious center, practice was very, very different. Um, so surprising fact, 85 to 90% of New England's white population did not belong to any church. So there is not only rampant atheism in New England in the 18th and 19th century, uh, most New Englanders were spiritual people, but they may not have applied to any specific church. So instead of a clear delineation, we see this mixture of Christian beliefs and folk practices when dealing with disease. So Bell states that these other New Englanders experimented with a worldview that tapped into alchemy, astrology, divination, seeing stones, dowsing, and other practices that Puritans viewed as allowing diabolical forces too close to the community. So I changed the wording on that because as many local scholars here in Massachusetts have discovered, there is an overwhelming evidence to suggest that 17th century Puritans um, are still using some of these methods. Um, you're just not advertising it as freely because of the religious piety of the community members. But we see this occult closeness depicted in the practice of vampire exhumation. The method often referred to as an experiment to prevent the death of a person by consumption. Because to the people on the fringes of New England society, consumption was not caused by bacteria, but rather the spread through communities by the corpses of victims that have not yet died, but remained alive, feeding on the heart blood of people that have fallen ill. It even makes its appearance in the official records of Cumberland, Rhode Island. So in an entry from the town council meeting on February 8th, 1796, there is an account given of an exhumation, and it reads as such. Mr. Stephen Staples of Cumberland appeared before this council and prayed that he might have liberty granted unto him to dig up the body of his daughter, Abigail Staples, late of Cumberland, to try an experiment on Lavina Chase, wife of Stephen Chase, which, being duly considered, it is voted and resolved that said at Stephen Staples have liberty to dig up the body of said Abigail, deceased, and after trying the experiment, as aforesaid, that he bury the body of the said Abigail in a decent manner. So the experiment that this article is referring to is the method used by those in rural New England to stop the actions of what we would refer to as vampires. The experiment would obviously include the exhumation of the individual believed to be a vampire, 
I had mentioned earlier that there was a belief in the need for putrefaction to occur for a person to be truly dead. So if it was believed that a person afflicted with consumption was the victim of a vampire, that meant that someone had not fully died and proof of this was needed to be found. Um, it needed to be found. If there was one thing that vampire hunters and scientists in this age agreed upon, it was that a body needed to decompose as evidence of death. If a corpse was exhumed and blood was existent in the heart, this was proof that a person had not fully died. And in the case of these New England experiments was the culprit in the wasting of a living person. The cure then is something that will literally chill the blood of those of you with a modern mind. And of course, you need to think about this from all of the angles that I've told you, all of the belief systems held by these people. You must remove the heart of the person exhumed, sometimes the liver or other vital organs, and end its curse by burning the heart to ash. The person who is living but close to death would drink a mixture then that contained the ashes of the vampire heart and organs in order to be cured. Of course, this method never worked, and the person would often still die of consumption. But for those of you confused by this belief, it's very understandable. What would drive entire communities to believe that this was the solution for someone dying of consumption? What made this belief so strong that they were willing to desecrate the grave and corpse of a family member that was supposed to have been laid to rest? To try and understand this with what knowledge you have of the popular cultural description of the vampire, we need to explore the symptoms of consumption and compare those to the need for putrefaction to mean true death. There's a little joke for all you True Blood fans out there. The symptoms of consumption usually started with a suspicious cough that would progress to reoccurring hemorrhages. That signaled the end and, and certain death, but the progression of symptoms in detail were horrifying to the family members because they had to watch this process happen and watch their loved ones slowly die. Consumption was a wasting illness, and it sometimes took months or even years to kill. Unless, of course, you had the galloping variety that could kill very quickly uh, with a rapid decline of just a week or two, sometimes days. A person could live in a relatively normal life. Little evidence of disease, right up until the final months or weeks of the illness. The scientific treatment for tuberculosis at the time was equally as horrifying, so it included methods as isolation, like I said before, but also bleeding, blistering, climatology, diet, drug regimens, exercise, leeching, opium, purgatives, and more and more the list goes on. But of course, these methods only seem to help because of the slowness of the disease. There was also the widely held belief that if putrefaction was needed for death, this included the complete loss of blood. And all agreed that if you lose enough blood, you die. So all parties agree on this in this time period. Thus, if blood itself is not in fact life, it must contain your essence, your soul, or your spirit, which to superstitious people explained why people believed that it was craved by the undead. If anyone was wondering where the connection with blood comes in, it's this. If blood was life, however, its home was the heart. So as Bell implies, the existence of liquid blood in the heart of an exhumed corpse was viewed as unnatural because it was interpreted as fresh blood. So if the idea was that blood loss and putrefaction were needed for a body to be fully dead, then that meant the presence of blood on the heart was an indication of a life force still within. Of course, people were unaware that in the process of decomposition, blood could sometimes reliquify, so we weren't entirely on the up and up yet. 
The method, as described in the 1796 case of burning the heart, was the idea of the complete drying up of the blood, putrefaction, and therefore complete death. When looking at vampire folklore, it becomes understandable why the wasting disease of consumption became equated with vampirism. So listed in Bell's work, um, some of the horrific symptoms that people would be forced to watch, consumptives mostly suffer at night. So essentially they wake up coughing and in pain. It's almost as if they're being attacked by some unseen force. As the disease progresses, ulcers and cavities develop in the lungs, creating creating a noticeably sunken chest. The sputum starts to grow thicker, starts to contain blood that lingers at the corners of the mouth and on bedclothes, especially in the parts closest to the face, like the neck or the chest, probably the pillow where the head rested as well. So the image of coming into the room only to discover your loved one mysteriously attacked by this fit in the middle of the night and to see blood on their neck, on their face, and on the pillow. Emaciation starts to happen. It becomes very extreme. The face takes on a death-like pallor with sunken and sallow cheeks, which is familiar to several people who have probably read about vampire folklore. But at the final stages, what happens is that suddenly you get a fever and your face flushes and you die from that extreme fever. You finally succumb to that in your weakness. So um, they're flushed with fever, and this gives the impression of a brief restoration. So a sort of shift in the state of being only to result in expiration as the person finally succumbs to death. Both consumptives and vampires in this sense are the living dead in a very literal sense, and it horrified the people around them. Vampire exhibition was then not only a mode of perceived protection and final death, but a means of coping, a mechanism to ensure the closure of family members who were left with the sudden and violent death of a loved one that occurred after months of waiting slow wasting and hoping that the person would not succumb to this seeming curse of walking death. The finality that was brought with the exhumation and burning of the heart served more than the singular purpose seen on the surface level. These exhumations have been painstakingly documented by Bell and show a pattern of folk belief that took on a very different meaning for the people of New England than we are used to seeing in the romanticized modern books and movies. This was nothing romantic for those involved, and it's certainly not something to be desired, but rather a moment of intense pain, um, but also of intense humanity, even though we're dealing with matters of the undead. So now I will leave you with a few brief stories, ending with the most well-documented exhumation and therefore the most important of the New England vampire panic, and seemingly the last, that of Mercy Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island. But I'll give you a few stories to share, because Rhode Island... um, there, there were not only vampire cases in Rhode Island. There were several in Connecticut, in New Hampshire, Plymouth County, Massachusetts, even as far north as Vermont. So they include various instances in the state. And there's actually a few in Vermont, Vermont that are cri- quite interesting. There's Manchester, Dummerston, and Woodstock. So the first in Vermont was that of the exhumation of Rachel Burton in Manchester, who was apparently affecting the second wife of her previous husband, Isaac Burton. But the second wife's name was Hulda. Apparently, hundreds of people flocked to this heartburning after the exhumation of Rachel Burton. Um, And it took place in a blacksmith forge in February of 1793. A man named Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in the sacrifice to the demon vampire, as the town history says, who it was believed was still draining the lifeblood of Hulda, as written in this early town history. 
Circa 1794-98, there was another instance that took place over a period of years following the deaths of the family of Lieutenant Spaulding. About six or seven members of Spaulding's family died of consumption, but one daughter was still ill and alive, so of course he's going to resort to this exhumation process. The body of the last dead child in this instance was exhumed, and the vital organs were burned, so not just the heart, sometimes the liver was burned as well, and maybe some other vital organs. Uh, The ill daughter in this case actually survives her illness, and she lived for many years, according to all accounts. There are actually two instances in Woodstock, the first being 1817 in South Woodstock, Frederick Ransom, who was a 20-year-old student at Dartmouth College, died of consumption, and his father, believing that this consumption has plagued the family, as I described before, um, had his body exhumed and his heart burned in Captain Pearson's Blacksmith Forge. The remedy failed for Frederick's mother, sister, and two brothers also died of the disease. And then there was another case of a man in 1830, separate from this, um, who was exhumed and his heart was burned in an iron pot on Woodstock Green, so very publicly as well. So oftentimes these exhumations were witnessed by several people in the town, and this was very important as well. There is a belief that one of the cases in Vermont uh, was even mentioned in the journal of Henry David Thoreau. So very well-known transcendentalist writer, very well-known to many in New England. And in an entry dated September 29th, 1859, he writes, I have just read of a family in Vermont who, several of the members having died of consumption, just burned the lungs, heart, and liver of the last deceased in order to prevent any more from having it. People have estimated that given the mention of the last deceased and the mention of other vital organs besides the heart that Thoreau is most likely referring to the Spalding case, because this fits the most with his description. It's also worthy to note that his interests spanned beyond curiosity, because Thoreau actually knew at this time that he himself had consumption. He died of the disease three years later. There are many, many, many other documented cases in New England. Um, To go through all of them would literally take me months to tell you. But you can read a bit about some more of them on Michael Bell's companion website to his book, Food for the Dead, in which he chronicles his search for all of these vampire exhumations. Um, It's called foodforthedead.com. You can click vampires on the main page and see the short list. I also highly recommend the book. Um, Prior to starting my research, I actually had not heard of this book. I only heard of it after finding that article that I referred to several times in this episode. So I actually ordered a copy and plan on reading it myself over the winter, uh, but most of my research is primary sources. So I found that article and then I tracked down the primary sources that Bell himself was talking about. Um, But I will leave you with the story of Mercy Brown to bring it back around to the beginning of the episode. This is the most well-known and documented and detailed description of a vampire exhumation in New England, and it is believed to be the last. The Mercy Brown exhumation of 1892 is very well documented. Um, Her father, George Brown, interacted with kin and neighbors to resolve the crisis that he felt was plaguing his family in a consumption epidemic in Exeter, Rhode Island. Edwin Eddie Brown was on the brink of death in 1892. Several family members had already succumbed to the disease, but Eddie first began to give evidence of lung trouble about two years earlier than 1892. According to a local newspaper, this young married man of good habits grew worse until, in hopes of checking and curing his disease, he was induced to visit the famous Colorado Springs where his wife followed him. And that's coming from the Pawtuxet Valley Gleaner in 1892. 
but Eddie grew worse, and on February 23, 1892, he and his wife returned to Rhode Island on the train. Following a long-standing New England social ritual, Eddie was essentially coming home to die, enmeshed in a web of concern under the tender death watch of close kin. So this is typically um, the prospect of dying and being surrounded by strangers um, was a truly frightening one, so it was thought that in order to die a good death, you should be surrounded by your family members at this stage. So as the outcome of Eddie's condition became evident, um, George Brown was faced with this decision. Would he satisfy his, satisfy his neighbors by having the bodies of his wife and two daughters exhumed and examined? Um, and this was the case of several family members that were thought to uh, have to make this decision over many of the instances that I described. So basically what happens is that um, to talk about what previously had happened in this family, several family members had died. Um, the mother of Mercy, um, her sister Mary Olive, and several people had already been interred. Um, so the community was protecting its family by doing this. So apparently Mary Tillinghast Rose, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's a totally different uh, little instance. So basically what happens is they, they exhume Mercy, they cut out her heart, and they burn it on a nearby stone, and they feed it to Eddie. Eddie does succumb to this illness. What's interesting about the instance of Mercy is that at the time of her death, it was too cold to bury her. So the difference between Mercy and her family members is that George Brown had to make the decision of exhuming his wife, another one of his daughters that had previously died, and then Mercy. So upon exhuming the first two family members, they find that they had desiccated. They had been almost down to skeletons. George Brown was not present for this because this was very, very traumatic, and he did not want to witness this. So those family members are reinterred. But when they dig up Mercy, well, I shouldn't say dig her up. She was actually stored in a tomb before she was buried because at her time of death, it was winter. So it was too cold to bury her. She's stored in a tomb in Chestnut Hill Cemetery. When they find Mercy, basically what they find is that she had not decomposed and that there seemed to be a flush to her cheeks, almost lifelike. So clearly Mercy had been preserved. When they exhume her and they cut out her heart, it was found that there was blood still in her heart. So of course, if you're talking about all this life's blood, heart blood, it was very clear that perhaps Mercy herself was causing the wasting of her brother Eddie. So after Eddie is forced to drink those ashes, of course, he does later succumb to the illness. So this was unsuccessful. And this family was forced to deal with this in the only way they knew how at this time. And the only way many people knew how at this time in New England. So I can sit here and tell you these stories and let you draw your own conclusion. But to end, basically, I would like to tell you that without the details of what it meant to these people, it is a meaningless endeavor to tell these stories, which is why I've decided to record this episode. So I hope that this episode leaves you with the sense that history and folklore are one and the same, but oftentimes the reality behind these myths is a lot more real. It's raw, it's spooky, and it's horrifying. Uh, much more horrifying than me just telling you one story could ever be. 
and I hope that you explore on your own. So of course, I will be putting up some supplemental materials. I have some photos of Mercy Brown's grave and of her family. Um, I have a picture of the entry of Henry David Thoreau and his diary, and I'll be putting up these materials, but I always encourage you to explore these things on your own. So when talking about vampires, this thing that we all have a morbid fascination with, the history of what vampirism really was to the people of 18th and 19th century New England is much more terrifying, and the actions they took to ensure that consumption would not come for all of them in the form of this vampiric-seeming uh, plague is even more horrifying as well. So, such is my task. Thank you all for joining me once again for an episode of Life After Midnight, Strange History Salem Style. So this is Kristen officially signing off, leaving you to ponder on the vampiric history of New England. As always, stay strange. <laughs>